This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Guys, we have a doozy of a message, and I haven't said that for a while, but somehow we got a doozy of a message. This is an outflow of the weekend where we focused on spiritual warfare. This message isn't necessarily on spiritual warfare, but there's an, a theme that was brought out this weekend that God just kept pressing deeper and deeper into my life, and so it ended up in our Sunday message as well. Uh, the stones of fire. Uh, quite a few years ago, I was uh, reading scripture, and I stumbled across this phrase, and it really intrigued me. I'm always uh, intrigued with phraseology. And in one passage of scripture, it was mentioned twice. And I'll, I'll read that passage. And it so intrigued me. I remember I wrote it down. I started a separate document of study on the stones of fire. I want to know about the stones of fire because I had no idea what that was. I never even heard of the stones of fire. And so what you see, oh, I don't know, maybe seven years later, is it finally made it into a message. It was interesting because I wasn't studying the stones of fire this week. I was studying something else and suddenly my thought of the stones of fire came to the surface. I was like, Stone, I've studied this. Wait a minute. And I went back to my notes on stones of fire. I was like, whoa, this suddenly it unpacked for me something that I've had a question mark because I have tons of those things. I have tons of notes of partially studied things that are like, okay, it goes on shelf because I'm missing a piece of something. I need God to give me a piece of something, like a puzzle piece of something so I can finish this puzzle, but I'm missing something. So I'm going to set it over here. And this was one of those unfinished puzzles that suddenly came off the shelf this week. Okay. Aren't you excited? It's a doozy. Look at the subtitle. The subtitle itself is a doozy. Treading honorably upon the sacred grounds of holy judgment. There is something in Scripture. Now, if you've hung around the Scripture, you know the New Testament is pretty strong in saying, hey, guys, don't judge. And yet, the New Testament, the same New Testament that says don't judge, tells you to judge properly. Okay, wait a minute. How are we supposed to not judge and yet judge? And so it seems like a contradiction at first. However, just like almost every truth in Scripture, you have a capital version of something, you have a lowercase version of something. Don't judge as a capital J judge. That's God's position. However, just like in your home, you need to make decisions. You need to arbitrate things. Your child disobeys, you need to judge. You need to transact in a legal sense to bring about a just discipline. And so judging is part of life. Otherwise, we would have chaos and anarchy. But there is a capital J version that we need to be very watchful of. And in our generation, as Christians, we have become uncomfortably close to a dangerous place of judgment against our leaders. We feel very free to let our opinions be known, to let our criticisms be known of everything that's happening in the political realm. There's no hesitation anymore. Just let it fly. Say what you want. There's a freedom. We're a free country. I have freedom of speech. I'll say what I want. However, we need to recognize that in the kingdom of heaven, we don't just say whatever the fleshly instinct is. We say what God would say. 
We need to be measured, and this tongue is supposed to be held by God to speak only that which he would speak. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now, that's actually somewhat of a confusing scripture in James. Leave it to James. James is not the easiest book in the Bible to deal with. But what we have is a concept that I'm going to unpack. So this will be one of those scriptures that when you have done, finished the message, you come back to this like, oh, okay, I, I actually understand that. Holiness to the Jew. This is before even we started Ellerslie 10 years ago. I came across this little statement of a rabbi named uh, Joseph Kalushkin. And it so fascinated me. And I'm going to read it to you. God's word is great and holy. So this is a Jew's perspective on holiness. The holiest land in the world is the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, the holiest city is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the holiest place was the temple. And in the temple, the holiest spot was the holy of holies. There are 70 peoples in the world. The holiest among these is the people of Israel. The holiest of the people of Israel is the tribe of Levi. In the tribe of Levi, the holiest are the priests. Among the priests, the holiest was the high priest. There are 354 days in the lunar year. That's a, the Jewish calendar. We all know that it's 365 in ours. Among these, the holidays are holy. They're holy days. Higher than these is the holiness of the Sabbath. Among Sabbaths, the holiest is the Day of Atonement, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. There are 70 languages in the world. The holiest is Hebrew. Holier than all else in this language is the Holy Torah. And in the Torah, the holiest part is the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the holiest of all words is the name of God. And once during the year, at a certain hour, these four supreme sanctities of the world were joined with one another. That was on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and there utter the name of God. And because this hour was beyond measure holy and awesome, it was the time of utmost peril, not only for the high priest, but for the whole of Israel. For if in this hour... Remember, this is a Jewish perspective on it. If in this hour there had, God forbid, entered the mind of the high priest a false or sinful thought, the entire world would have been destroyed. That's the perception of holiness to a Jew. The seriousness of the Holy of Holies. This sacred territory of God's presence. To speak the name of God. The holiest of all words in all of all languages. On the holiest of all days, the holiest of all people would enter in and utter that holiest of all names in the holiest of all territories in the holy earth. This whole earth is set apart for God's glory, but that one space in the holy of holies before the throne of Jehovah God to speak that name. Whoa! So some of us have heard that legendary story that the, the high priest had some kind of rope tied or a chain tied. If he fell down dead in the presence of God, they could drag him out. Okay, there's no proof of that, but it's a fascinating statement. I don't know if there's any proof. There's nothing in the Bible that says what he said. The whole world would be destroyed. However, you could understand the gravity that a nation would be feeling if it thought that. That if this one man had any sin upon him, when he entered the holy of holies, not just his life would be destroyed, but the entire world destroyed. Okay, that puts a little gravity on it. Now imagine how a Jew feels when we Christians come burping and scratching our way through life and say, oh yeah, I'm the temple of the Most High God. Do you even know what you're talking about? To a Jew, they tremble before the presence of God. 
They would never take lightly the realities of being in that holy, holy, holy place. Do you understand what you're saying? We're like, burp, scratch. Yeah, God saved me by grace. And I'm free in Christ Jesus to live however I want. And you're the mobile temple of God? The temple of God is holy. And so can you understand why the Jews would trip over Christianity? It's like, excuse me? (laughs) What is that? That is not how a holy God would work in his people. I get it. I could actually see the, uh, the challenge that would be facing the Jew in looking at Christianity and wondering, wait a minute, this is a degradation of God's holiness. You see, you know that God's holiness has not diminished one bit from the Old Testament into the New? In the Old Testament, we know he was holy, holy, holy. When he, we got to the New Testament, he didn't convert into just loving, loving, loving. He's always been loving, 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 but he's remained holy, holy, holy. The importance of the shed blood of Jesus is to recognize it didn't change his holiness. It gave us an avenue with which we can now be safe in his holiness. We can now enter into his holiness, but that doesn't change the atmosphere of his holiness. He still is holy, holy, holy. The chariot of the cherubim, the mobile holy of holies. I wish I could just teach on this because it's one of my favorite thoughts in scripture. But what we have in the book of Ezekiel is this picture. This picture of a chariot. And I'm I'm actually interpreting a lot of things because in Ezekiel 10, it helps us interpret Ezekiel 1. However, in Ezekiel 1, we have no idea what we're looking at. And if you've ever read Ezekiel 1, usually you finish in Ezekiel 1 and you don't read Ezekiel 2 because it is so weird. It is a trip into Narnia. And that's not an exaggeration. It's one of the strangest things you would ever read in the Bible. There's this chariot. It's like a crystal sea, a platform. And underneath it are wheels. But like these wheels are covered with eyes. And... Next to the wheels are cherubim, okay? They say living creatures, but in Ezekiel 10, we actually discover that they're cherubim. Okay, and these cherubim are these angelic creatures that have four wings, hands of a man, feet of a hind. They have four faces, face of a man, face of an ox, face of a lion, and face of an eagle. So what we see is this description of something known as the chariot of the cherubim. It's a mobile presence of God. God's throne is seated on top of this crystal platform with these wheels. Okay? That's what it's describing. Now, what's extra amazing about this, and that's why I'd love to teach on it, just a whole message in and of itself, is that when Paul says, basically this is what he'd be saying, no longer is the presence of God carried by the almighty cherub, not almighty, the mighty cherubs. It's now carried by the weak people of this earth, those that are believers in Christ. We become the carriers of the glory of God. We are the new chariot of the cherubim. That is so astounding because the cherub is mighty, wise, powerful. They move like lightning. When their wings flap, it sounds like the voice of God, like mighty rushing waters. You flap your arms, not the same effect. (laughs) We are not impressive next to the cherubim. God is used to being carried. It says, on a cherub, he did fly. Isn't that a weird statement? God flying on a cherubim? Yep, yep. Now, on the church of Jesus Christ, he does fly. God is a massive downgrade. He has chosen weak things to carry his glory. But may we, as the weak things, recognize 
the high and holy privilege of what we are being commissioned to do. We are being commissioned to bear the name, the glory, and the authority of the Most High God. We must tread circumspectly and honorably on that territory. So, now remember what the title was. It's the Stones of Fire. Okay, now as I go through this, you're going to see this come to the surface. You have to recognize I've spent a long time in my life noticing stones and rocks and different things that are burning in Scripture. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I'm always intrigued because of this stones of fire coming. It's like there's no commentary on it. It just says the term. And it gives me nothing. So I'm like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'd like to know more. But God hasn't been very forthwith with me. He's been very held back. He's like, oh, so you're interested, Eric. All right, you focus on this over here. I may give that to you in the future. And so here we are with a message called the Stones of Fire. So this is in Ezekiel 10. We have that same chariot. We have those same cherubim, those same wheels, that same throne. And we have this statement. And I looked, says Ezekiel, and there in the firmament, that's that crystal barrier that's like the platform on which the throne of God is. And there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels, under the cherub, fill your hand with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. So Eric's intrigued, right? It's like, wait a minute. There's some coals of fire. It doesn't use the term stone, but coals and stone, I mean, they're not that far removed, right? So, and where are they? They seem to be between the wheels. There's a throne, and then here there's this crystal sea, and there's stones down there. There's like these coals of fire down there. What do they do in there? Well, when you study scripture, you're going to see those same stones in front of the throne all the time. It's like, what are they doing? Stones of fire. The stones of fire, four interesting facts. So I'm going to describe the stones of fire as a piece of real estate. It's a space. It's a piece of real estate in the presence of God. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers. Okay, so in Ezekiel, we see this revelation of this arch nemesis known as Lucifer, Satan, the devil, Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. But, what's that? Thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So, number two, it's located in a sacred position at the foot of the throne of God. So you're going to see there's multiple things that would allude to that. Some of this I'm postulating, I have to admit. This is not the easiest thing to understand. But it seems to be at his feet. It seems to be between the wheels. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and he had rays flashing from his hand. And there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, listen to this, and burning coals went forth at his feet. But what it is about his feet and these burning rocks. Number three, it seems to be associated with cleansing and purging of confessed sin. So in the earthly temple... We have this holy of holies, and then we have an altar unto God. It's called the the golden altar, the brazen altar. So you have this altar, and on it is burning coals. It's supposed to be lit constantly. 
So these coals are always hot. And it's in front of the throne of God. Right? So even in the earthly temple, you have a throne. And then in front of it are coals of fire. Isn't that a fascinating statement? And but and if you look at Isaiah 6, do you guys remember what happens with these coals? These coals are used for a very specific thing. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So these coals, these fiery coals, seem to be in front of the throne of God. And though I'm about to introduce you to the fact that these are stones of judgment, I mean, terrible judgment comes from these stones. They also seem to be, for those that are humble and broken over their sin, they seem to be the exact opposite. They seem to be a rescuing agent. So these burning coals that could be your arch nemesis if you defy God, actually when you humble yourself before God, cleanse and purge you. So number four, they seem also to be associated with destruction of defiant evil and unrepentant sin. And by the way, this is so replete in scripture. And as I read some of these things, you'll begin to recognize it. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. That's a weird thing to do. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now there were so many occasions of this in scripture where what comes down out of heaven is burning coals. Hailstones of fire is another way of saying it. Isn't that a weird one? Hailstones? When I think of hail, I think of something frozen. Hailstones of fire. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. So there's so many other mentions of this. In fact, one of the other mentions talks about these stones, these hailstones of fire that come down as judgment. And people are crying out in agony. You know why? You know how heavy these stones are? They're the, they're the weight of a talent is what it says. You know how heavy a talent is? It's the, the weight of a human. So most people will, in most translations, they'll say a hundred pounds. Could you imagine a hailstone coming down out of heaven with fire that weighs a hundred pounds? Could you imagine surviving that? Ah, I mean, that is outrageous. When I think of a hail, you know, a golf ball size hail, I mean, that's going to do serious damage. Insurance companies are going to have a huge nightmare on their hands. Bob the roofer is going to love it. And yet, I don't even know if Bob the Roofer knows what to do. That's Bob Gasaway, by the way. I don't know if Bob the Roofer knows what to do with 100-pound hailstones hitting the house. I mean, this is structural damage now, guys. We're dealing with huge issues. So if you want to say in, in your notes, you have a whole bunch of other things you could look up on that. It's extremely fascinating. The stones of fire. So I'm going to start by saying that's the place of God's burning judgment. There is something that is always before God. And it's this, these stones of fire. And it is a burning judgment. He hates sin. He hates unrighteousness. God has never ceased to be just. The fact that God's justice has been satisfied in Christ 
is something that we consider good news, but that doesn't change him from being a just God. It does not alter the fact that he is a holy, holy, holy God. The fact that he has maintained his holiness and still saved us is part of the profundity, the beauty, and the power of his saving hand. How does a God who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly just save wretches like us, which are deserving, justly speaking, of eternal condemnation? How does he do it? Well, let the gospel unfold before you and you begin to recognize, wow, God didn't violate even one of his laws. And he perfectly fulfilled all righteousness in rescuing us. He was perfectly righteous in setting us free. You know that God can't steal? That's against the law. So God couldn't steal us out of the devil's hands. He redeemed us. He ransomed us with his own shed blood. He satisfied justice. The only reason the devil has any hold over our life is because of our sin. So if he deals with our sins, suddenly the devil has no grip. And he did it. By faith, when we believe in Christ... The devil loses grip. He loses any authority over our life. We are set free legally to be his children. So the stones of fire, the place of God's burning judgment. Warning. Now, in the Old Testament, this is very clear. Warning. Do not draw near this holy place. Do not just cavalierly stride into the temple of God and go through that curtain. Oh, no. You will die. And now over and over in the Old Testament, this picture is clear. There is a prohibition. God is holy. You are not. Stay away. Remove your shoes, Moses. Do you remember the burning bush? God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Isn't that a, a weird statement? God is like saying, hey, Moses, don't draw near. You need to recognize, Moses, I'm holy. Take off your shoes. So he says, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now I'm going to liken this to the stones of fire. In other words, when you're dealing with the issues of judgment, you need to remove your sandals. You need to recognize you are now on holy, sacred property. Don't take it lightly. If Moses was going to say, hey, I'm free in Christ and come up and like hug the bush... This is serious stuff that God is talking about here. Don't draw near. And so for all of us to recognize the seriousness of God's presence, the fact that in the New Testament he says, draw near, boldly draw near, is not a statement of the fact that he's changed. It's a statement that he has done the work to rescue us, to change the legalities of the situation so by faith we could be clothed in his righteousness and as a result enter into such a place of burning fire. The mountain of fire. Now I had a whole bunch of other great scriptures on this. I just clipped it down to a couple. This is a command from God to Moses. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. This is a holy mountain, Mount Sinai. God's fire, his presence has descended upon it. Literally, it was like a burning crown on the mountain before all the people. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Whoa. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like you see the chariot of cherubim with all its coals landing on the mountain. And what's happening on the mountain? Flame of fire and smoke coming up. The presence of God. There's a burning in his presence. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Wow. Same God. I think we forget. We fail in this translation from Old Testament to New Testament to recognize that God is still holy. Now, when we enter his presence, we enter his presence as new covenant believers with a confidence that we are secure in this presence because we are in Christ and Christ is righteous. He is without spot and without sin. And as a result, while we're in him, he's our carrying vehicle. He is the way to the father, but we still, it's okay to tremble, to recognize and to have a fear of God and a reverence is what it's called for the realities of his holiness. The question of all those that behold God is a consuming fire. If we were to transport back in history and just be at the base of that mountain, do you know these people were so afraid? They said, don't let God talk to us. You talk to God for us. They were so terrified of the presence of God. And this is the very presence that we as new covenant believers boldly are called to enter into. Whoa. So here's the question that is reasonable for every one of us to have on our lips. If we were to see the consuming fire of God, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? There is an answer to that in Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. All right. Who's going to go then? And if you want to risk it, are your hands clean enough? Is your heart pure? Gulp. I'm going to say that there is one whose hands are perfectly pure and right and his heart is perfectly pure before God his hands are clean his name is Jesus Christ who may ascend his name is Jesus how may you ascend in Jesus that is the only way to ascend the hill of the Lord that's the only way to enter into this mountain of God is truly to understand his covering his grace his mercy the middle wall of partition, it's, it's just there. It separates Gentiles from Jews. It is a prohibition. A Gentile dog, which not, I don't know how many of you in here are actually Jewish by descent, but most of us in here are probably Gentiles, which unfortunately we have to add the dogs to the end of that. We are prohibited from entering into even the outer segment of this holy place. In other words, this is, this is a place that is set apart, and we would profane it. How much more profound is it that Gentile dogs are being invited near? I mean, the the profundity, the the beauty, the power of the gospel for all of us is extraordinary. So the middle wall of partition, what does it basically say? Do not draw near. So this is a guy named Samuel Rutherford. Is that, that, I get his name? No, John Rutherford. Sorry, Samuel Rutherford's a different guy. In the year 1871, while excavations were being made on the site of the temple by the Palestine, Palestine Exploration Fund, M. Claremont Ganau discovered one of the pillars which Josephus describes as having been erected upon the very barrier or middle wall of partition, to which Paul refers. This pillar is now preserved in the museum at Constantinople and is inscribed with a Greek inscription in capital or unctual letters, which is translated as follows. This is, this is really amazing. 
No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure round the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Do not draw near. I mean, what's being said to every one of us as Gentiles? Do not draw near, lest you die. Do you recognize that we are dealing with a holy, holy, holy God? For us as Christians, we're like, nope, we don't get it. We don't understand the holy, holy, holiness of God. We don't understand the sacred terrain of the stones of fire. We have traipsed upon the stones of fire the same way Lucifer did in many regards. He blasphemed the stones of fire. This is a serious crime. And it's something that I want us to be alerted to, to recognize that the kingdom of heaven is constructed after a pattern of deep reverence, deep humility, and the fear of God. So Ephesians 2 deals with this middle wall of partition that I just wrote about. I just gave the quote about. But now in Christ Jesus, in Christ, what's your position? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Instead of it being Christ and us, it's us in Christ. Two men being made one. The Jews, the Greeks being gathered together in Christ. No more wall. There is access for us to draw near to the stones of fire. So this is a finishing thought from John Rutherford. While Paul was writing the epistle to the Ephesians at Rome, this barrier in the temple at Jerusalem was still standing. Yet the chained prisoner of Jesus Christ was not afraid to write that Christ had broken down the middle wall of partition and had thus admitted Gentiles who were far off, strangers and foreigners to all the privileges of access to God in ancient times possessed by Israel alone. That separation between Jew and Gentile was done away with forever in Christ. Climbing into Jehu's chariot... Jehu is a fascinating character. He's a king of Israel that for a brief time in his life, because no king of Israel did that which was right in God's eyes. Not one. Kings of of the Jews or Judea did. There were a few of them, a handful. No king in Israel did that which was right in God's eyes. Jehu did, and then he fell to pieces. Okay, so we're just like, oh, we're almost there. No, he didn't make it. Jehu, his name means the I am is. That's basically what his name means. It's, it's a pretty profound, Jehovah is Jehovah. The I am who was and is and always will be, is or was and is and always will be. That's what his name means. He's a great picture of Christ in this slice of his life. He's on a chariot of all things, and he's come to bring judgment. So you could imagine the stones of fire beneath this, uh, this chariot, and he is destroying everything. If you study this, this story of Jehu, it's Rather gruesome, okay? He is literally destroying everyone. Jezebel went down under the wheels of this chariot. Okay, this is one powerhouse chariot that is bringing the judgment of God, the stones of fire to bear. And yet, on his journey to destroy Ahab's sons, he runs into someone. This same chariot that is crushing under its wheels evil, this same chariot is going to do something completely different. Now, listen. 
Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up to him into the chariot. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Woo! You see, we have a choice. We either are under the wheels of this chariot or we get inside. Is your heart right towards me as my heart is towards you? Says the judge of judges. Where's your heart? Are you willing to submit to him? What's your heart towards him? Because when you stand as Ahab, as Jezebel against him, you will be under those wheels of judgment. The stones of fire are either for your judgment or they are for your salvation. Isn't that an amazing statement? The stones of fire. Now, before, this looks very similar to a a previous slide that I gave. But in that slide, I said the place of God's burning judgment... The same stones of fire seem to be the place of God's burning mercy. Now, what's extra amazing about that and the character of God as revealed in Scripture is that mercy triumphs over judgment. So as a result, he is inclined to give mercy. Yes, he is a just God. But this just God is inclined towards our salvation. He desires all men to be saved. He is inclined to rescue you. Is your heart right as mine is towards you? You see, Jehonadab is going out to meet him. You see, he sees the burning judgment of this, this king, but he also knows his mercy. Jehonadab is crazy as all get out if he doesn't know that Jehu has mercy to give. Uh, guy, this guy is trampling everyone under his chariot wheels. Are you going to dare to come out to meet him? To literally stick your hand out and trust him? That's what we do as Christians. We say, I trust that this God of holy, holy, holiness has mercy to give. It's given through the shed blood of his son. He reaches out to us and says, my life for yours. Is, my, is your heart towards me as my heart is towards you? Oh, Lord, why you give me mercy, I have no idea. But yes, take me up into your chariot. You see, in the day of judgment, you do not need to fear the judgment. Why? Because you are in the judge. You see, our great secret as Christians, it's not that we will not all stand before the great white throne. It's that we are in the chariot of judgment as opposed to underneath the wheels of it. The conqueror's stone. In scripture, there's so many amazing pictures of stones. And they're all seemingly to do with judgment. Right? You, how, do you, how did you kill someone in ancient Israel? Pick up stones and throw it at them. Right? You were stoned to death. Isn't that an amazing statement? God, what does he throw down from heaven? Hailstones, the weight of a talent. Whoa! I mean, this that's like boulders coming down out of heaven. In other words, talk about a stoning. It's a stoning. And so a stoning is a symbol of judgment against evil. And we're all deserving of it. And yet think about Christ. Think about the woman caught in adultery. Who is deserving of a stoning. Isn't that an amazing thought? I just want you to ponder that. And who steps in? Jesus reaches down. I mean, the profundity, the beauty, the power of the gospel is amazing. 
But think about what was rolled in front of the grave. A stone. You see, the stone of judgment to say you are forever condemned. A criminal in the ground, forever condemned. Their name forever blotted out. But that stone that covers our burial, our condemnation, has been moved away. Now, the way I like to see it is like it laid flat before the conquering Jesus. And there's that stone of fire in front of him. It's underneath his feet. He has defeated that which was our judgment. Our just condemnation is beneath his feet. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door for the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. What a summary of the gospel right there. I mean, these women are coming just to anoint his, or to, uh, was it anoint his body? I forgot what they were doing. They were coming to do something, whatever they did back then. And yet, they cannot remove the stone. So they're discussing with themselves, there's no way that we can remove this stone. Who can remove it for us? That's the same question we have. We can't remove this judgment over us. The stones of fire are just. And we are deserving of a just condemnation. But we have one who has rolled away the stone. The stones of fire are either that which purges us of our sin or crushes us under their great weight of judgment. And therefore, oh, this is that one about the the heavy stones. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about 100 pounds each. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. I can't even imagine a hailstorm with a hundred pound hailstones coming down. In the midst of this, this holy God. So I have described, take off your shoes. Do not draw near. The mountain consumed with fire. Don't even touch it lest you die. Same God. He hasn't changed. And then in the New Testament, we have the most bewildering statement. Draw near. Uh, Wait a minute. Wait a minute, God. Did I hear you correctly? Draw near? I mean, aren't I supposed to stay away? There's supposed to be a boundary between you and me. The veil in the temple is rent in two. The access for us into God, the access for God into us has been made by the shed blood of Jesus. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. You know how profound, how amazing, how pithy such a statement is and how lightly we take it. Oh, come boldly, of course. If you recognize the entirety of the Old Testament up to this point, then you shudder to think, like I'm supposed to go in there. Yeah, but not in your own righteousness. Not in your own good works. Not in your own virtue. Put off the old man that is under condemnation. Wear Christ by faith. Step into the work of Christ by faith. Now, you can enter. I can enter. Because Christ can enter. I enter in Christ. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But don't forget where you are. Though you can enter boldly, don't forget that you're in the presence of the holy, holy, holy king. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Remember this strange passage in the first Corinthians where it's talking about communion, which is ironic because we have communion today. Possibly all of us will be trembling as we take communion today. Good. So he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, which means there's a proper way, there's a worthy manner of handling the body and the blood of Jesus. It says, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. 
not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. This is in the New Testament. In other words, what we have is a statement to say there's a proper way to handle holy things. There's a proper way to stand in the presence of God and to interact with these things. Because these symbolize what his work is. Do not tread lightly on that. There's an honorable way of handling these things. Even the angels recognize how to handle. And when Lucifer handled things the way he did, it was such an interruption to the incredible perfectness of heaven. There was a violation that took place that says he sinned. What we don't want to do is have the privilege of entering into this holy, holy, holy place and take it lightly. There is a right way and a wrong way to walk amongst these stones. So, speaking to Lucifer, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I will cast you as a profane, as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Overstepping our place. So, this is a challenging thing to understand in scripture. Some of you have seen it in 2 Peter and Jude where it talks about uh, mishandling the issue of like dignities and uh, uh, reviling authorities and it's like so you say am I supposed to say the Lord rebuke you instead of I'm rebuking Satan all that all that whole context right it says it twice in scripture. I want to address that really quick here because that's what the issue is. The issue that we're dealing with is an overstepping of our place. We have been invited in. But when we're invited in, there's a proper way of handling the authority that we're entrusted in Christ. There's a proper way of handling his presence. And when you mishandle it, as we see in 1 Corinthians with communion, it actually leads to a breach in your life for the enemy to harm you. You are bringing judgment on yourself. You are actually creating a harm in your life. So I taught about this this weekend. It's a very fascinating uh, uh, term in the Greek, but it's blasphemos krisis. Blasphemy is typically a mishandling of the name of God. And so it's interesting that this word is used. It's typically uh, translated as reviling authority. However, the word reviling is blasphemos which is to take that which is sacred, that which belongs to God alone, and claim it for yourself. Jesus was accused of blasphemy. Why? Because he declared himself to be the Son of God. He declared himself to be God. He was taking godness upon himself. Well, that belongs to God alone. Blasphemy. Well, unless he is God, which he is. So it's not blasphemy if you actually are God. However, for the rest of us, let's stay far and away from that. And that's what is dangerous about this, is presuming a position of God. And that's where the issue of judgment comes in. When you take God's position of capital J judgment in this world, you are treading very dangerous territory. So the term is blasphemos crisis, attempting to be God in the stones of fire. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. So, it is not our job to judge God's style. Capital J. That is not ours. We need to leave it to Him. It is not our job to condemn. 
capital C condemnation that comes from God. If you're a judge in this world and you have a courtroom, there is a possibility that you might need to condemn a prisoner to jail or to prison or even death. But that is because their job description in an earthly sense pertains to that. For most of us in here, we are not judges in a legal sense, society-wise. But I know for sure we're not a capital J judge in a spiritual sense. And so as a result, this applies to all of us. It is not our position. Do not overstep that. Do not step into the uh, the stones of fire and act like you are God. And that you can make those decisions over someone's soul. That you can make these types of statements. A sober reminder about the man of sin. So the man of sin, the Antichrist, bad guy, right? Look at what he does. He sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He goes into that very place of the stones of fire, and he sits down as if he's God. Beware. (laughs) Such behavior. Let us stay far and away from thinking of ourselves. That just because we are allowed into such a place, that we can behave with such audacity. Examples of overstepping one's place. So the Siva's seven sons, fascinating story in the book of Acts. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Saying, we exorcise you by by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, Jewish chief priests, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped, was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They're messing with things they have no clue about. They are dealing with matters that are so far beyond them. The only way to deal with evil spirits is you need to recognize that Jesus is the one that has dealt with them. And so you can't just refer to the Jesus that Paul preaches. You must be in that Jesus. To be able to function in such a role, you must recognize that only he has the authority to do something. You share in his authority. You have none of your own. Brute beasts unafraid to speak evil of spiritual authorities. Those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. They speak evil of things they do not understand. Now, The reason I think it's important for us to recognize this, how we speak, not just of angelic beings or fallen angels, which matters because we're dealing with things that are beyond us and it's not our position to actually stand toe to toe with the devil. That's Jesus's position and he shares it with us so that we can enter into him and in his authority, we can resist. But we must recognize that there is an honor to the understanding. He is the capital R rebuker. We are merely ones who use his authority in alliance and in agreement with how he leads us to deal with the enemy kingdom. When it comes to the issue of earthly authority, that is included here. And when you speak with railing accusation, what does it say? Those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. This generation that, we, that is in the younger uh, place right now, right in the collegiate levels, 
has probably more disregard and despising of their authority than maybe any other generation in American history. Okay, maybe not in all history, but in American history, I think we're at the pinnacle of brashness. We are all in this generation, and though we may not participate in some of the extremity, some of the denial of God's law, where we literally are throwing out all construct of a Judeo-Christian worldview, snubbing our nose at it, saying, I don't care if God has anything to say about it. I'm a giraffe. Literally, there's a guy who's a giraffe. And that is absurd. It is nonsensical, and it is a snubbing, a a disregard completely to the fact that there is a creator who is holy, holy, holy. But we live in this generation and the propensity that we have, which was awakened in the church during the Clinton era, to begin to feel a freedom to accuse and to bring judgment on our leadership. I remember I was in an interview back then uh, and someone asked me, it was during the, the Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal, And they said, as a Christian, how do you encourage us to respond to this? I said, well, it's dangerous territory that we as the church are uh, dealing with because we are responsible as Christians to submit to our leadership, not because of their perfection, but because of their position. And so that is still my president. And I want to honor him as my leader, though I disagree with his morality. I still want to show honor to him. And I've said this to all my students. If Barack Obama, this is in the Barack Obama administration, most Christians have a tendency to lean away from his politics. If he were to come in, I, would, I, I told all my students, we would show honor and respect to him as the president of the United States. We would show deference to him. We would not show rudeness to him. We would honor him as a president. You see, as Christians, we, in the privacy of our own heart, mind, Little conversations at coffee shops feel it's okay to throw railing accusations out there. We have no idea what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an issue of despising authority. It does not mean you need to agree with them. It does not mean you need to throw out your mind and say, oh, whatever my president says, I will do. It's called civil disobedience. If they ask you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, you say, sorry, it's better that I obey God than man. However, to the degree... That what, how they are leading you does not ask you to transgress your own conscience. You submit. If they ask you to pay a 90% tax, you submit. In other words, this is the construct of the kingdom of heaven, though it drives some of us crazy. There is a manner in which we deal with the stones of fire. If we are going to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven on this earth, we need to recognize that we still serve a holy, holy, holy God. And authority still stems from him. And so as a result, we show honor and regard, though we may disagree with it. Dreamers who dare to bring a reviling accusation. These dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. It's a very derogatory statement about those that despise authority. Brute beasts. In other words, we do not want to function as animals. We want to function as Christians. Now, a lot of people get caught up in this whole, Lord, uh, may the Lord rebuke thee. The concept of rebuke I taught this weekend is an idea of correcting. So if there's wrong, you give right. If there's evil, you do good. 
You are bringing a correction to something spiritually. And it is our job to bring correction in this natural realm to what the devil is trying to do. I use the illustration of a, a table with five coins on it. And the devil surreptitiously grabs two of them. And then God says, hey, put those back. That is our job as the church to literally go to the spiritual powers that are grabbing the coins off of God's table and saying, let those go. And that's a rebuke. The way we rebuke is we do not do the rebuking ourselves. In the name of Eric Ludi, I rebuke you. We do it in the authority of Christ, which is the Lord rebuking. The way we do that is in the name of Jesus. So the way that we match this of what Michael the archangel did is we do it in a position in Christ of deference, of recognizing he is the capital R corrector. He is the one that corrects the devil. We are merely taking from his authority and applying it where he leads us to do it. Even the angels, this is Warren Wiersbe's uh, commentary on this, is fascinating. Even the angels, though greater in strength and power, will not intrude into a sphere that is not their own. The angels remember the rebellion of Lucifer and know how serious it is to revolt against God's authority. Treading inappropriately amongst the sacred stones. Listen to this quote. This is what I would call treading inappropriately amongst the sacred stones. I cannot think of a more audacious statement. So Nikita Khrushchev, the former premier of the Soviet Union, a uh, staunch atheist... We are going to explore space to find God. And when we find him, we will communize him. Beware. <laughs> That's dangerous territory. It might be humorous to a communist. But this is dead serious in the kingdom of heaven. This is very real. Treading lightly, cavalierly in God's territory. And defying him openly. Who is fit to throw stones from heaven? So God has stones in heaven. He has judgment. Which of us is fit? Let he who is without sin throw the first one. See, God has judgment. And he will bring judgment. He will bring true justice. But we are not the ones fit to throw those stones. He, Jesus, raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. The stone thrower, the true stone thrower, the one who will bring justice in the end, capital J judge, is Jesus Christ, the one who is without sin. It is mine to throw stones, says the Lord. Now that's a revamp of the scripture in Romans, but just think about it. It's mine to throw stones. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Christ pattern for walking in the stones of fire. Gentleness. It is almost mind-boggling to think that to correct this darkened world, God uses things like love, kindness, mercy, gentleness. It sounds so paltry and weak. And yet, you want to function on the stones of fire properly? You want to live and dwell in the presence of God Almighty. You need to be in agreement with his nature. God seeks to give mercy. He doesn't seek to bring judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So his inclination is always first towards mercy. As Christians, our inclination is always to be first towards mercy. Always first towards recovery, redemption, hope. 
gentleness. So I want to introduce you to gentleness. But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. This is in the days of Hezekiah, King Sennacherib is reviling God openly. He's reviling Jehovah God. He's speaking, I always picture him with a megaphone, speaking to the, uh, the town of Jerusalem. All of Judea is in, uh, is in the town of Jerusalem, walled in. And he is laying siege on it with at least 185,000 Assyrian troops. And he is mocking Jehovah. He is mocking Hezekiah. And how, do, how does Hezekiah respond? Listen to this. With gentleness. Now, most of you think that when I say gentleness, it means softness. It means, oh. Actually, gentleness is simply the opposite spirit. So, therefore, if reviling is coming, you don't meet reviling with reviling. What is our instinct? If someone reviles us, hey, you stink more. It's to give it back to them. It's to show your wits and to undercut them at even a greater degree. That's not Christianity. So as Christians, we respond to evil with good. That sounds weak. I know. It doesn't sound like the way we should do it. That's because there's a way that seems right to man and it leads to death. But there is a way that is right to God and it leads to life. And that's gentleness. So look at what Hezekiah says. He is being reviled. Jehovah's being reviled. Someone needs to say something. What does he say? Don't answer him. Don't speak a word. It's the opposite. This guy is loudmouth. I mean, his speech, the speech of Sennacherib is just like, whoa, it goes on forever. Don't answer him. You see, sometimes it's to speak. Sometimes it's to not speak. And that's how God functions in the stones of fire. What is gentleness? Simply, it's the opposite spirit. So if evil strikes, it's goodness. If judgment pelts, it's mercy. If hate, love. If darkness, light. If death, life. If rudeness, kindness. If mockery, silence. If disdain, forgiveness. If reviling, blessing. You're going to have a hard time arguing this, guys. That's the New Testament for you right there. You see, this is the pattern of warfare for the King of Kings. Now, just think of the cross. And what you see is they hurled mockery. They hurled revilement. They hurled violence. What does he give back? Love? Forgiveness? He gave gentleness is what he did. That they might be led to repentance. You see, this is the grand scheme of God that he would wield the opposite. And as a result, nullify what the enemy is doing. The greatest rebuke of the enemy is to give gentleness in the midst of hostility. The devil swarms with evil and you give good. The devil devil swarms with hate and you give love. The devil swarms with lies and you give truth. The devil hates it when someone sings in a prison cell because he's doing their best to bring him down, to bring her down, and yet they sing? You see, it's the opposite. Humans don't sing in prison cells. Christians do. You see, we are of a different kingdom. We do not hurl a stone at the prison guard. We forgive them and we give love. You see, we are in the sacred place known as the holy presence of God where those stones are, but we do not pick them up to hurl them. We are given authority to speak in the name of Christ, but we speak the way he would speak. We do not bring a railing judgment. We leave it to our God to judge. Meanwhile, we have a job to do. 
we love. We show mercy. We forgive. We bless. Now, some of you is driving you crazy having me say that because you have a juicy situation in your life which really needs to be put down. And there's a fleshly instinct within you to curse back, to punch back, to give eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But the kingdom of heaven has come and the nature of God has been established. You see, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is justice. You see, someone steals your eye. In the end, God will bring justice if they do not repent. Someone steals your tooth. Guess what? God will bring justice. That is still justice. But in the meantime, mercy triumphs. Your job when they steal your eye or knock out your tooth is to forgive. Is to give mercy. Is to give life. Not to bring judgment. To pick up one of the stones of fire that you have access to and hurl it. So, if disdain, forgiveness, if reviling, blessing, gentleness has many expressions. But they all are as Christ is in the midst of the behaviors that Christ is not. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Now, this is Paul speaking to Titus. It's a pastoral letter. And Titus is exhorted by Paul to do something very specifically, and that's to remind his people, his congregation of something. Remind them to be subject to rulers. That's extra difficulty. Extra difficult when you have like the Ninth Circuit Court. And you have people that are lacking some brain cells out there. That are reasoning with mush brains. They are illogical. They are against the kingdom of heaven. You remember Nero? Nero had mush brain. He used Christians to light his feasts as human torches. Remind them to be subject to Nero. What? You've got to be kidding. God, I'm subject to you alone. Yes, that is true. And this is how I want you to live. So as you serve me as your king, I want you to show honor, respect, and submission to your earthly authorities. It's also clear in scripture that if those earthly authorities ever require you to violate your conscience and your relationship with God, your answer is no. However, in the meantime... Even if they have unjust requirements of you, submit. Carry that burden an extra mile. This is exactly opposite human nature. This is God nature. Working in a Christian to win the battle of earth. You see, God is in the business of victory. But if you're going to side with God and see the power of God in this generation, you have to be a flow-through channel... Of his nature. And his nature is not like this world. So whatever your natural instinct is. It's wrong. You need his response. Which is supernaturally given. You do not have natural access to his response. You need to climb out of the old man. Climb into Christ. Where you have access to all of his treasury. Of love, mercy, kindness and gentleness. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's called a pushover. Yep. One that wins battles. 
Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Remember gentleness? They may speak evil. You don't speak it back. They may revile. You don't revile back. Even inside. Oh, that's the extra one. I mean, it's one thing to to purse your lips and to not say what you were really thinking to say, however you thought it. In other words, to not be a landing spot where the enemy's evil cannot roost inside of you and bring out evil in you. Even if you keep your mouth shut, you still got something swirling in there. To be the sort of person that can be punched and out comes love. Jesus had a spear in his side. What came out? Living water. Life water came out of him. What comes out of us should be what comes out of Jesus because we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit so that what comes out of us is what comes out of Christ. But on the contrary, blessing. So you don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, you give blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Turn away from that evil. Do good. Which, by the way, doing good means doing what God would do. It's godliness. Goodness is only God. And so if you're going to do good, who do you need? You need God. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When you choose to do evil in response to evil, the face of the Lord is against you. It's like mishandling the body and the blood. You could say, in the name of Christ, I'm going to do this to bring retribution on these evil people in this generation. You've blown the whole thing. That isn't how it works. You are a minister of God's kingdom. Not of this earth's kingdom. The ultimate picture of gentleness during the greatest battle of all history. I mean, it's the war of all wars. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, the odds are so stacked against this one poor guy. He just happens to be God. And he happens to know how to win battles. And the way he wins this battle is so preposterous to all of us. He humbles himself. Becomes obedient unto death. Even the most humiliating death of all, being stripped naked, being scourged as a common criminal, pinned to two pieces of wood before a mocking crowd, beard ripped out, spittle on his face, a crown of thorns mockingly, jeeringly set into his brow. And he doesn't open his mouth. What are you doing in that situation? Hey, I'm innocent. Hey, guys, you got the wrong guy here. I didn't do anything. I've never sinned. Yeah, that's our story, huh? What's his story? I'm not hearing anything. He doesn't say anything. He's silent as a lamb unto slaughter. He is responding in the opposite spirit. They hate him. He loves them. They want him dead, condemned, judged. He forgives. They want judgment. He gives mercy. What is this? kingdom of heaven come to this earth revealed for all of us to take note the very same kingdom that wants to move in and inhabit this body and reveal it afresh in and through us yes it is opposite our natural man that's the whole point this world doesn't need any more natural men and women it needs christians 
Men and women emblazoned, filled with the Holy Spirit of God that love in the most unlovely circumstances to give mercy in the situations that would not have any mercy to give. That when we're kicked in the ribs with that steel-toed boot, out flows forgiveness and love. That when we're chained to a dank prison cell floor, given a bowl of uh, yuck, you know, rancid something in there with worms crawling in it. We give thanks for that, and we bless. Do you remember Richard Wormbrandt? His statement after being tortured for 10 years, being in solitary confinement. I mean, miserable 10 years, right? He says, what was it like? They gave us instruments. They gave you instruments? Yeah, and with those instruments, we praised our God. They gave you instruments? The guards, the communist guards gave you instruments? Yes, yeah. Our chains. And with our chains, we praised God. Okay, that drives the devil crazy. How can he stop that? He can't. You see, our weaponry is not of this world. It is not carnal. But it is mighty to pulling down strongholds. You want to win this battle in your life? You fight it God's way. You have been invited in to the war room. You have been given access to the stones of fire. And God says, don't throw those stones. These are stones of mercy for you. I want you to touch lips with the burning hot coal of Jesus Christ and see them purged. Just as the seraphim did. You are a carrier of mercy to all that will humble themselves. In the end, those that do not humble themselves, I will be the judge. Leave that to me. That is not your job. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Don't you want to draw your sword just like Peter? And say, you take that back. You are talking to the king of all kings. Set down your sword. My kingdom is not of this earth. We will not win this war that way, Peter. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Honorable amongst the stones of fire. This is an incredible scripture to summarize it all. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Listen to this line. With gentleness, remember that opposite spirit? With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. You have a whole world that's in opposition to you. You have some of the most strange things that's ever, that have ever existed in any culture in history taking place right now. Facebook, oh, this is even a couple of years ago, had 54 genders to choose from. Chaos. We live in a realm of chaos where logic and truth is flushed down the toilet. The more logical it is and the more truthful it is, the more we avoid it. Which creates a vacuum for us because as Christians we're trying to appeal to their soul. And there's no landing place. It's like this culture that is designed by the devil to repel truth. That's a hard world to live in. And it's very easy to get mad at it. It's very easy to want to speak judgment over it. God says, refrain your tongue from speaking evil. Instead of revilement, I want you to bless. It does not mean that you're encouraging sin. It means you're desiring, you're speaking life to see them set free. Oh, devil, in the name of Jesus, let those people go. Drop them. In the authority of Christ's name, drop them. Because this is the season of mercy. That sinner, God desires to give them a savior. He desires to rescue them from your hands. 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, the gentleness to our opposition opens up an avenue through which repentance can be brought to their soul. Even the hardest criminals. This is a dark day when this is being written to Timothy. It's a dark day like our dark day. And it probably seemed back then totally ridiculous that people would come to Christ. And yet, they did. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Your personal application of this, I want you to take it on the personal level of just how you're using this tongue. Some of you are vulnerable to misusing this tongue towards your parents, towards your brothers and sisters, and you have spoken harshly, you have demeaned authority. I want you to feel a fresh wave of conviction on that and recognize that you have been invited into a very sacred territory in the kingdom of heaven. The very near presence of God, not so that you could blaspheme in such an environment and take it lightly, but that you would allow the Holy Spirit to convict you afresh today and to touch these lips with burning coal, to purge you, so that you could now use these lips to speak words of life to your parents and your brothers and sisters. Some of you... It's your job. And you got that one guy that you work with, the one gal, you know, that has the station across the way that really bothers you. Or how about that boss of yours that doesn't get it? I mean, you work hard and he never seems to recognize it. And it is just hard working there. So what should you do with this mouth? You should probably repent of all that stuff that you have said and start speaking words of life and blessing and mercy and kindness. And then, for all of you that just happen to be very attracted to politics in our modern day, you see, there's a pattern that is being set forth amongst the conservative community, and that is to rail against the liberals. I mean, literally, it's open season on stupidity. And they are speaking sharp words, they're logical, and if you listen to some of those pundits, you're like, amen, 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 give it to them, give it to them! And you're participating in a railing accusation. It is bait for our flesh. Have you ever noticed that? That the, You walk by a newspaper. I mean, I am so susceptible. Walk by a newspaper. I'm not even watching the news now. Okay? I mean, literally, as a discipline of my soul, it doesn't help me. Okay? So I walk by a newspaper. Like, what's going on in the Mueller probe? What's going on? What? what? Oh, yeah, right, media. That is so off. Such a lie. Fake news. I mean, we are so susceptible to being swallowed up, get this, in a revilement of the very people we are called to love. That guy who thinks he's a giraffe, God loves him. Do I? Or am I going to take the gender politics and revile him, judge him, and say, to hell with you? Because that is throwing a stone that I am not supposed to throw. God has given us an opportunity in this generation. It's a hard generation for this exact message, but one that I think is desperately needed. I want us to take those stones, and instead of judgment, they're stones of mercy. I have a living stone known as Jesus Christ that I want to give to you. He will purge you of your sin, and he will give you newness of life. Please, humble yourself. Receive this upon your lips. Let it change you. But that's where it starts with us. There's a living stone, guys. He is holy, holy, holy. This tongue, this lip of yours, let him purge it so that you can be an instrument 
of grace and mercy in this generation. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.